Welcome to episode 19 of the Going for Broke Outdoors podcast, a podcast by an outdoorsman for other outdoorsmen. I'm your host, Jeremy Gillespie. Today's podcast, it's going to be a little different. This is my first video podcast, and second, I'm the host, and I'm also the guest. Today, I'm going to discuss my planning and preparation for my 2021 Iowa non-resident archery deer hunt. I'm going to cover the following topics. Zone selection, purchasing preference points, the hunter safety requirement, which is something I wasn't initially aware of. I'm going to look at cyber scouting, specifically Iowa's hunting Atlas online application. And within that, LiDAR mapping, which I found to be really helpful. I'm going to talk about my boots on the ground scouting. I'm going to do a quick recap of my actual hunt. And lastly, Iowa, does it live up to the hype or does it not? Before we get started today, I want to give a shout out to Dipped Hydrographics. Located in Allmont, Michigan, Dipped Hydrographics specializes in hydro-dipping deer skulls, firearms, and ATVs. In fact, Dipped Hydrographics can add your favorite camo pattern to just about anything. Dipped Hydrographics also has an experienced and licensed taxidermist on staff for all of your taxidermy needs. For contact info, visit www.dippedhydrographics.com. That's www.dipt hydrographics.com and check out all they have to offer you can also find them on facebook or follow them on instagram from skull mounts to shoulder mounts dipped hydrographics is your one-stop shop for all of your whitetail trophy needs if you're a whitetail bow hunter then you probably already know iowa is hailed as possibly the best whitetail state in the country as a result the demand for non-resident licenses significantly exceeds the supply the iowa department of natural resources manages this issue with a preference point system so Depending on where you want to bow hunt within the state of Iowa, you'll need to buy preference points before you can hunt. Here's a breakdown of the preference points required to draw a non-resident archery deer license in 2021. I'll also put a link in the description of this video so you can retrieve the draw stats yourself. I bought my first Iowa deer preference point way back in May of 2015, which seems like an absolute eternity ago now. At the time, I had zero Pope and Young deer to my name, and I thought Iowa was the golden ticket to finally make that happen. Preference points are currently around $60, and the Iowa DNR site is pretty helpful on answering a lot of questions one might have about buying points and applying. So here's a link to the DNR FAQ page. I'll also put a link to this in the video description as well. So that's step number one. Review the zones, see how many preference points they take to draw, start buying preference points, and start planning your hunt. Speaking of planning your hunt, that's what I started doing way back in 2015. That was pre-Hunting Public days. I think Hunting Public came out in 2017. So for 2015 and 2016, I knew I wasn't going to be able to draw the zones that I wanted to. I had pretty much settled on Zone 9, which is the northeast portion of the state, or Zone 5, which is south central. I was living in Michigan at the time, so 9 made sense because it was closer, and 5 also made sense because there's a lot of Pope and Young deer that come out of there and also a lot of public land. So it kind of narrowed it down to those two. In 2017, I thought, I think when I reviewed the draw stats, there was a chance that I could draw with three points. So that spring, I made my first trip to Iowa for a three-day scouting weekend. That's something I definitely recommend if you have the time and the money is a spring scouting trip prior to hunting any new state. 
it's always a good idea to get boots on the ground, get a lay of the land, check out your access routes, see if you can find any sign, check out the hunter pressure. So in 2017, that's what I did. Headed down for the spring, and here's a few photos from spring scouting that year. I was pretty excited by the sign that I was finding. I did cover a lot of ground. I think in three days, hiked about 25 miles, and I didn't have that many spots, surprisingly, that I was very excited about after all those miles. I think I had five spots that I had picked out that I would hunt when I'd come back, and that's pretty normal for me. I'd say I get one spot every five to ten miles of boots on the ground. So if you're relying on cyber scouting alone, I think that's one of the big mistakes that people make is when you go on an out-of-state hunt, you look at a map, you pick out some spots, and you think those are just going to pan out when you get there. It's pretty rare that they do. I mean, occasionally they do, but I can't overstate the importance of getting boots on the ground in the postseason and also in-season, which is something else I'm going to talk about a little bit later. Well, fast forward a little bit. The fall 2017, I actually injured my shoulder pretty badly, and that ended my bow season that year actually and I was only a few days in like October 4th I tore the labrum in my shoulder so I couldn't bow hunt the rest of that year the following year it was better and I hunted 2018 I drew a Kansas tag so I didn't apply for Iowa and then that fall I actually had shoulder surgery so 2019 I was pretty sure I was going to try and draw my Iowa tag ended up moving to Montana that year so I was excited to hunt Montana, excited to hunt elk. I figured oh, I'll put off hunting Iowa one more year. 2020, drew Kansas again and decided, well, one more year. And then so I just kept buying preference points. So going into 2021, I had six preference points, ended up drawing a zone five tag. If people don't know, that's the area that the hunting public hunts primarily. I believe they live down there. When I got time to apply for the tag, I was a little bit nervous about putting in for that area because of the hunting public and how much hunting pressure I thought there might be. But then I remembered non-residents, it's a quota system. The quota is always met in zone five. So hunting public or not, that area was going to have the same amount of hunters. So that's something I think to keep in mind if you're thinking about hunting zone five, the pressure is pretty constant from non-residents every year. I can't speak to the resident pressure. Maybe that's increased. And I did see a lot of resident plates on public land while I was there scouting and hunting, but the non-resident hunter pressure is pretty much a constant. So I decided to go ahead and put in for zone five because I'd already scouted there in 2017. So after you've decided on a hunting zone and purchased the appropriate number of preference points, it's time to apply for your license. However, if you've never hunted in Iowa as a non-resident, there's something very important that you need to do first. You need to have your hunter safety certificate on file with the Iowa Department of Natural Resources. This means you need to know where your certificate is. If you're like me, and maybe you've moved once or twice or 15 times since you completed hunter safety, you might even need to order a replacement certificate. Depending on who issued that certificate originally, that could take days, maybe it's weeks, or possibly even months. So here's a heads up. Don't wait until the last minute to locate your hunter safety certificate and file it with the Iowa DNR. To file your certificate, email a copy to customer service at gooutdoorsiowa.com and reference your customer account number. Once I emailed them, it only took two or three days and my status was updated in their system. So if you're lucky enough to draw the tag, the next thing that I moved on to was cyber scouting. And I'd been doing some cyber scouting on and off throughout the years, but I got real serious about it once I drew the tag. 
I've got a real in-depth article on my blog about cyber scouting and what I look for. But basically, I look at three different types of maps. I look at uh, topo maps first. Then I look at aerial maps for areas that don't have good topography changes. And then lately, I've been looking at LiDAR maps. And if you're not familiar with LiDAR, I've also got a separate blog article about LiDAR maps. And LiDAR is short for light. That's the L-I in LiDAR detection and arranging. And basically, LiDAR is like a radar, but instead of using sound waves to bounce off objects, it uses light pulses. It's the same way your laser rangefinder works. And typically, LiDAR systems are mounted on a helicopter or an airplane. They fly over an area, and it gets a really high-resolution ground scan. And unlike a topo map where you might have 10 or 20-foot elevation lines, LiDAR maps have really high fidelity, and they can be as accurate as 1 to 2 feet. So you get a way better idea of the terrain. They also penetrate pretty well through the forest canopy so you can get a good idea of what's on the ground level where you're going to be hunting at. You can see old logging roads. They're really, really good for seeing benches that you can't see on a traditional topo map, for seeing little rises on points, steeper parts of points, bowls, depressions. They're just really good. So if you haven't checked out LiDAR maps, I'd highly recommend that you do that. Again, I've got a blog article and what I'm going to show here is the Iowa Hunting Atlas. They've actually got a LiDAR layer that you can enable. If you're not familiar with Iowa Hunting Atlas and you're going to hunt in Iowa, you should definitely check it out. It shows all the public lands and it's got a bunch of different layers that you can enable. But before we get into the Iowa Hunting Atlas, I want to take a moment to give a shout out to Uncle Lou at Stealth Outdoors. Stealth Outdoors has been a supporter of this podcast from the very beginning and I couldn't think of a better sponsor to have. I've been using stealth strips personally since 2013 or 2014. The buck I showed earlier in the podcast, my best buck prior to 2015. You can see in the back of my truck way back in 2014 when I got that buck that my lone wolf sticks then had stealth strips on them. I actually had that set of sticks for six years before I sold them because the steps and the bolts were getting worn out and the stealth strips looked almost brand new. I won't say they were brand new, but almost. They held up really really well over time and i use that stand probably 30 to 50 times a year in and out of the back of my truck bushwhack and all that stuff and, and stealth strips really held up great so thanks to uncle lou and stealth outdoors for supporting this podcast there's a reason i have that stuff on my gear and it's because it works so if you're having problems with unwanted noise head on over to stealthoutdoors.com and pick yourself up some stealth strips some cable silencers they make buckle silencers now, and they've got rolls of various sizes for all your miscellaneous silencing needs, like camera arms, releases. I mean, you can put that stuff on anything. Lasts forever, reasonable price, and just a great product. So check out Stealth Outdoors and give them some business. So we're going to go ahead and look at the Iowa Hunting Atlas. Head on over to Google or whatever your favorite search engine is. Type in Iowa Hunting Atlas. And then go ahead and down to this place is to hunt and shoot and then click the public hunting atlas so once the atlas loads you're going to get this screen for terms and conditions agree and then the atlas will show you all the properties that are open to the public to hunt so i'm going to go ahead and zoom in so if you click on property it'll tell you the area name how many acres habitat types 
and the local contact information. So one of my favorite features about the Atlas is up here in the layers library. Go ahead and click that. And if you scroll down to the bottom, the very last option, if you check that, that'll enable the LiDAR layer. So once the LiDAR is enabled, you get a way better idea of what the ground level looks like. So I'm just going to go ahead and zoom in on some of this topography. So this is the kind of detail you get. Again, very, very high fidelity. So I use this extensively to look for benches, points, areas I thought deer might be bedding, overlooked saddles. And I spent a lot of time on this layer toggling back and forth between the aerial, this, and then cross-reference a lot of the spots that I found to the topo map and anything that I found on the topo map that was very obvious, I kind of put that at a lower priority. I used the LiDAR to find some overlooked spots where they didn't really show up as anything on the topo map, but they were plain as day on the LiDAR. So it looks like there might be a small bench here. So we're going to look at that and zoom in a little more. So here's a flat area going across two draws. Now I found a lot of these and a lot of times, so a lot of times these are actually dikes that are built up for ponds. So I'm going to toggle the layer off here real quick. And you can see there's a pond there. And here's an example of a really steep draw. You can see these cut creek banks. That's one thing I found when I was scouting in Iowa. A lot of these bottoms have really steep banks. They're six, seven, ten foot deep, sometimes ditches with like sheer bluff face sides. So the deer will go around those a lot of times or crossing areas. Like here's an example. It almost looks like there's a trail coming down here so that that's something I'd investigate and if you look looks like it's steep right here and it's cut right here so that's very likely a deer trail crossing that area and that's something again that you would never see on a traditional topo or an aerial map I'm gonna go ahead and toggle the layer off yeah so you can see through there that you'd have no idea that was there but with the lidar that's very likely that could be a cruising pinch point right there so not saying it is, but those are the types of areas that I was cyber scouting for and putting on my points of interest. So when I headed to Iowa to scout, I was checking these out. I was going from high odds point to high odds point and looking for sign within those points. So after I completed all my cyber scouting, I had 25, 30 points that I was really interested in checking out. I was hoping to go back just prior to or on the opening weekend, which was October 1st, and do some combination scouting, hunting. I was hoping to scout in the morning, hunt in the evening, but that didn't end up panning out. I was chasing elk in Montana. I was on elk pretty regularly and I didn't want to leave. And also the weather in Iowa was very warm early season, a lot of upper 70 degrees. So I wasn't too excited about driving all that way to walk around in all the heat and probably have low action hunts because of the hot weather. Around mid-October, the weather finally broke and had some cooler temperatures rolling in. I think I headed to Iowa October 21st, 22nd, somewhere in there. And my plan was to do scouting in the morning and hunt in the evenings, but I ended up scouting almost the entire time. I think I hunted one evening. This is something I would definitely recommend. It's kind of counterintuitive to have this tag to go there and then to spend a lot of time walking around not hunting. I did carry my bow the entire time, which is something I definitely recommend whenever the season is open. But I spent most of my time scouting because I wanted to find hot sign and I wanted to find where the deer were at because they planned on coming back the following week, which was right around Halloween to start the main part of my hunt. So I wanted to be going into that hunt specifically with a lot of confidence. And that's exactly what happened. Some of the spots that I had LIDAR scouted really panned out and looked great. 
and some of them looked like complete bust. So I was able to scratch those off. The other thing that was a bit of a surprise, a few of the spots that I tried to access were absolutely miserable with green briar and those really steep draws that you couldn't cross. So if I hadn't made a trip there to scout boots on the ground, I would have gotten some hairy situations in the morning trying to access in the dark in some of these spots where just like I said, tangle of thorns or real steep cuts that you couldn't easily access or get across. So that's why I'm a big advocate of whenever you can travel in the postseason, check out the lay of the land, those access routes, and then go back during the season because I want to know what sign's hot that year right then. And that's what I wanted to find out. So when I came back later in October, I was ready to hit the ground running. And here's some of the sign I found on that trip. Something else I did on that first trip is I spent a lot of time glassing the first thing in the morning and the last hour in the evening. That turned out to be super helpful. I didn't necessarily expect it that time of year, October 22nd, 23rd, but I actually saw four or five really big bucks and one that was probably 170, just a huge buck. And I saw him crossing off of private land where he was probably bedded into one of the public lands that I'd already scouted and headed towards one of the setups where I'd found some bigger signs. So that gave me a lot of confidence too. Again, I realize this isn't something that everybody has time for, but if you can make one or two of these trips, especially when you have a tag like the Iowa tag that's only every couple of years, it is definitely worth it. Gather a lot of intel, and then when you're ready to hunt, you're feeling confident in every sit. So after my mid-October trip, I came back to Montana, and I kind of game plan for what I was going to do when I returned to hunt around Halloween. And I thought about it a lot, and my plan was to hunt the areas that I thought would get pressured the easiest or that were the easiest access first, and then I would move on to the more difficult access later in the hunt, and that's assuming, you know, the wind conditions were right for those areas. And the reason I did that is I was hoping to beat other hunters into these areas and have a fresh sit before other people had pressured some of these areas. So the first spot I planned to hunt, during my scouting trip, I had to cross a small creek. I had rubber knee boots on and was able to get across the creek pretty easily, almost jumped across it. But then the week that I left, Iowa received a lot of rain. And when I came back, it was uh, the middle of the day, and I was heading out for the afternoon hunt. And when I went across the creek, I had hip boots on, and I couldn't get across it. It took me four tries to get across it, and I pretty much had to tiptoe and use a stick to find my way across. So I was pretty confident that that was going to limit the pressure in that area. Well, after the third try and almost swamping my boots repeatedly, I made it across. I used a stick to my way across and it's gonna be fun in the dark so I can pretty much guarantee no one else is out here unless I got waiters. That evening I saw a few does. They ended up winning me so not a great start. I figured I'd give it another hunt in the morning which is what I did and when I got into that spot in the morning started hearing gunshots off in the distance then they got closer and closer to the point where I had to yell from my tree at some squirrel hunters to quit shooting because they were within like 20 yards of me so that was fun. After that incident with the squirrel hunters, I decided that spot was a bust and I moved about a half mile from there to an area that I'd also scouted with some good sign. So I moved midday about a half mile. I sat in that spot that evening. I did see one two-year-old buck and a couple does and also a bobcat making the craziest noises I've ever heard. I had that on film, but I just watched the clip and you can't hear it really, but it was making these really weird snorty hacky noises and I had no idea what it was. Never heard a noise like that in the woods before. And then a bobcat came busting out. So that's definitely the culprit. 
Sat there the following morning, didn't see anything, and I got the impression, even though the sign was good, there were scrapes or some big grubs around, that the deer in that area weren't moving, you know, or the bigger bucks until after dark, and they weren't really cruising yet. So after that morning hunt, I tore the stand down and kind of abandoned that area between the squirrel hunters and the general lack of movement. Even though there was good sign in that area, I just wasn't feeling it. So that's something that I'm willing to do is just cut my losses and move on. That evening, I decided to do some ground hunting. I used the Ultimate Predator Gear Stalker Decoy. It's a bow-mounted decoy. I'll put a picture of it here up. And man, I use these now for antelope, elk, and deer, and I would not be without one during the rut for, for any of those animals. So I put the Stalker Decoy on, and I went to a different property that I didn't have time to get to on my October 22nd trip. The weather wasn't the greatest, and I wasn't feeling like the bucks were really cruising hard yet so i wanted to go scout this spot and about two hours into scouting i was about an hour before dark i walked into a thicket and kicked up a really big eight point deer probably 20 yards away from me but he blasted out of there right away probably a 140 150 type deer real wide 19 20 inches wide big one and so i knew i was going to get back in there the following morning the following morning i got there about a half hour before daylight shut my truck off and just waited because you could park right along this property and it was pretty thick all over. So I thought there's a chance that I could run into deer right away, right out of the truck. So got there early, shut the truck off, got everything ready and just waited. And then once a gray light hit, I started walking with the decoy. I got to a position where I thought would be good to rattle, rattled, waited about 15 minutes, didn't see anything, didn't hear anything. So I started walking through some CRP and maybe one, two minutes after I'd started walking from that rattling sequence and I was sneaking, I looked up and I saw a nice buck. He was about 120 yards away. And this is where these decoys, I mean, I wouldn't believe this stuff unless I'd done it myself, but the deer had seen me walking, stopped, looked at me. I just picked up my bow, which had the decoy on it, faced it towards the deer. And he looked at it for about two minutes after that without moving. And I just waited, and then I grunted once, and the deer just started walking right at me. After seeing a person walking, the decoy just totally overrode that somehow, and, and he started coming right at me. So I was in probably waist-high, maybe a little bit taller CRP-type grass, so I slowly knelt down, and that buck started working right in towards me. And at some point, he got a little spooky and stopped and I didn't want to peek out from behind the decoy to range him because I thought that he would spook from seeing me and also my, you know, anybody's rangefinder, but rangefinders have a hard time ranging through grass. And I was in enough grass where I didn't think the rangefinder was going to work through the grass. So I didn't range him. And then he just turned and started walking off. So he was broadside. I drew, stood up and I knew when I stood up that he would stop and look. And that's exactly what he did. So I drew, stood up, he stopped, he's broadside, I aimed, and I thought the deer was about 45 yards. So I put my 40-yard pin a little high and shot. I heard an impact. He took off, so I waited. He ran out of sight, went, found the arrow. Arrow had good blood on it, but prior to finding the arrow, I ranged where I thought he was standing, and he was actually like, 37 yards so I shot for 45 and he was 37 so eight yards different and I I think between the little bit longer shot and me using 
the you know wrong range estimation i end up hitting that deer high i'm 99 sure of it so found the arrow i waited about an hour started tracking the deer long story short i tracked it 900 yards on hardly any blood typical if you've ever tracked a high shoulder hit just a typical high shoulder hit muscle blood no long blood never bedded down just kept going blood gets watery trickles and then there's just nothing so uh tracked that deer geez probably took me three hours to get as far as i did and then it just ran out and no sign of the deer so almost always they live on a hit like that never like to lose a deer but that that stuff happens hindsight maybe i should have risked it and tried to get out from behind the decoy and, and range them or maybe i should have stood up with the decoy ranged it first and then drew my bow um hindsight's 2020 of course and in the moment i felt like i made the best decision that i could and just have to live with the results so that was a bummer that was a bit definitely a bummer that was a nice deer probably lower 130s uh, eight point so deer i would have been really happy with that's kind of what i was hoping to get when my trip to iowa i was realistic about my expectations so i was looking for something 130 or better and that would have fit the bill well i want to take a quick break from the podcast to talk to you about backwoods mobile gear Backwoods Mobile Gear produces an array of products to completely customize your mobile hunting setup. Backwoods Mobile Gear's product line includes climbing aiders like their multi-step aider and versa aider. Climb higher using the same amount of climbing sticks with climbing aiders at a fraction of the weight of an additional climbing stick. Backwoods Mobile Gear also offers a variety of Amsteel rope solutions from daisy chains for climbing sticks to Amsteel gear hangers. Replace those bulky straps and hunt ruining metal cam buckles with buckleless and lightweight Amsteel products from Backwoods Mobile Gear. Check out Backwoods Mobile Gear at www.backwoodsmobilegear.com if you want your setup to be lighter, to take you higher, and to keep your gear tighter. So after coming up short with that first deer, I decided to keep hunting on the ground. A lot of these areas that I was targeting for ground hunts were CRP or smaller pines, thick areas, they had good cover, but not necessarily great for tree stands. I saw a lot of pressure in the hardwoods, in the hilly type terrain, like the oak forest there in Iowa, and less pressure in low-lying swampy areas, and even less pressure in areas that aren't traditionally great for tree stands. Again, like CRP, pine thickets, willows, tag alders, you know, thick stuff, but not great for a tree stand. So there's still plenty of deer in those areas, and that's the areas that I focus on with the the decoy and the ground hunts it seems to work well and go hand in hand there can kind of move through those areas from cover patch to cover patch i like to glass for 10 15 20 minutes at uh, each main patch of cover and then hopefully spot the deer before it spots you it's much easier that way and then flash the decoy and, and a lot of times they come in they commit like i said i've had good luck with the decoys on antelope elk and deer also and i think especially if you have a grunt tube with you and a lot of times i had the decoy set up as a doe and i would use a butt grunt i don't think it really matters when you have that visual the decoy and you also have some audio cue like a grunt call it seems to work magic and you would think looking at those decoys with a hole in them and mounted on your bow that they wouldn't work but i'm here to tell you they do i'm not sponsored by ultimate predator gear or anything about all those all my own money no affiliate links none of that stuff i just i've had such good luck with them I wouldn't want to be without him on any hunt during the rut, no. So anyways, I kept up with the ground hunting. I did an evening hunt where I ended up running into another hunter in that area where I saw that big 140, 150 type 8 point. So I got out of that area where I'd seen the deer and went to another property, 
couple days later, I went back to that same property and I had three bucks come within like 10 yards of me, but they were all two year olds, nothing big. And then the weather started to turn colder and I, I felt like I had burned the one spot out where I'd seen that bigger buck. So I had scouted a spot on my October 22nd trip that was way back on a piece of public. I don't know. I think it was like 1.4, 1.5 miles long hike and miserable world to get through a lot of swamp and a lot of deadfall and stuff. And I didn't see any sign of hunters back there at all from this year or previous years when I was scouting back there. So I just felt like a lot of people weren't going to venture that far back, you know, carrying a stand on a mobile hunt or whatever that far. It's, it's not for everybody. So I decided when the weather cooled off and it was going to be like a 25, 30 degree morning, it was November 3rd. I decided I was going to hike back into that area, set up, and then I was going to hunt there for two or three days and see how that went. Well, I hiked all the way in, took me a little longer than I thought. It took me almost two hours to get in there. Again, a lot of deadfall. I couldn't find my tree exactly for a while and I didn't want to walk all over the area. So um, I found the tree right as it was getting, you know, gray light barely. And by the time I got set up in my stand, it took me 20, 30 minutes. Uh, the sun was just about to come up. And it was literally 10, 15 minutes after that, I started having action. I actually cut the video off there because I wasn't sure if I was going to shoot that buck or not. Looked pretty good, and then as it got closer, couldn't tell. Looked like it was about a 120, and at the time, I was hoping to get something better than that, so I ended up letting it go. So after I shut the video off, that buck actually came within five yards of my stand, broadside, so that was kind of a tough pass there, but I was glad I passed the deer. I still had a lot of time left to hunt, and then a little bit later on, I saw another deer coming from my left, and he ended up working through my area. Um, through the scrapes and end up getting back into where this previous buck had just come from. So there's this deer. At this point, I was starting to feel pretty confident in this area. This video was about 8.30 in the morning. I'd already seen three bucks two within range, two decent bucks, and quite a few does. Figured it was just a matter of time before a little bit better one showed up. Action slowed down about 9.30, and then I didn't have much action from 9.30 to 11. But at 11, I heard some noise, looked to my left, and I was only about five yards off a, a thicket. And when I looked over there, I saw a doe coming out. She had her tail up, and then shortly behind her was what I thought was a pretty decent buck. Well, the doe worked through the opening in front of me at about 12, 15 yards, and then the buck followed her, stopped to work the scrape, and there was a scrape in front of me at 18 yards. So as he stopped to work the scrape broadside, I had, uh, you know, 10, 15 seconds to look him over, and I, I thought this was like a 130-type deer. And that's what I was really hoping to shoot. So I drew back, settled the pin, and let it rip. I made a great shot on that deer, took off. I actually saw him go down, probably went down within 50 yards. So waited a half hour, went down and checked him out. 
That's when I found had a little bit of the old ground shrinkage. Wasn't quite as big as I thought. Uh, I was a little disappointed. I'm not going to lie. You know, you, you wait for so long to go to Iowa. You put it in for all these preference points. Finally get the tag. And the fact that I had seen several deer, four, five, six deer, that were for sure 135, 140 or better, when I realized that I had shot one that was quite a bit smaller than I initially thought, was a little bummed. But then on the other hand, try to remind myself that I'm grateful to have the time, the opportunity, and the health to travel out of state and go on these hunts. So it took me a day or two, but but I got over it and was real happy with the deer. Ended up dragging the deer out of there. That took me like four hours. I should have just corded it up, but at that point I was still a little mad at myself. So I thought I'd drag it out of there to, to teach myself a lesson. And probably three hours into the drag I, I ran into a good samaritan i felt bad I, I i dragged the deer right into his where this guy was hunting but he was he was real cool about it had a good attitude like you'd hope most people would hunting public land actually took some photos for me so took this photo that's where the the only pictures i got of the deer came from and then after a little bit he actually got out of a stand and, and come gave me a hand dragging the deer the last five or six hundred yards to my truck so that was nice so after all that Iowa Holy Land or hype, what's my final thought? The tag is definitely expensive by the time you figure in the preference points. So if you're in zone five, you need at least four at $60 a piece. That's $240. There's a good chance you're going to need five. So that's $300 just in preference points. You're looking at, I think, $550, $600. I don't even remember what it was for the tag. So... On the low end, you're looking at 800 bucks, possibly as high as 900 bucks just for the tag. So is the hunting good enough to justify a $900 deer tag? I don't know. Only you can answer that. What I can tell you is that I've hunted a lot of different states now. I've hunted Ohio, Kansas, Iowa, North Dakota, South Dakota, Montana, Michigan, and for a whitetail hunt, Iowa was definitely the best quality hunt that I had on public land for the numbers and the quality of the numbers of deer or the numbers of bucks that you see. Hard to beat Iowa. A lot of deer, a lot of deer. Saw deer pretty often. Saw a lot of nice deer. And even though I didn't see some of those deer while I was hunting, I did see a few big bucks on or right near public land. So they're definitely around. The numbers are there. I think if you go there with the expectations of shooting like 125, 135-inch buck, very attainable. Still didn't see a ton of giants. Saw only two, maybe three really big deer, you know, talking 145, 150 or bigger. But even then, saw a couple of those on public land. So they're around. I guess it depends on how bad you want to chase big deer and what your financial situation looks like. But I can tell you that I will definitely be back. So... That's my opinion. Is it worth it? Even at the high price and the long wait, I would say yes. Had a great time. And next time, hopefully, I'll be a little more patient and my eyes will work a little better. I want to take one last break to thank Dan Infault and Mario Traficante over at Hunting Beast Gear. This podcast has been brought to you by Hunting Beast Gear. I've been using their climbing sticks for the last two years and I absolutely love them. Hunting Beast Gear features state-of-the-art manufacturing techniques, the highest quality materials, and innovative designs that have been engineered, field-tested, and refined to perfection 
by a group of the best mobile hunters on the planet. If you want to learn more about Hunting Beast Gear and our product lineup, head on over to www.huntingbeastgear.com. So thanks again, Dan and Mario, and everyone check out huntingbeastgear.com today. Well, I want to wrap up today's podcast by mentioning that the new year, 2022, is just around the corner. I want to encourage everyone that's listening to step out of your comfort zone this year, whether that's tackling a new piece of property in your local area, going on your first out-of-state hunt, or passing the caliber of deer that you haven't passed before. Whatever your goals are, challenge yourself this year. I want to wish everyone good luck and have a safe and prosperous 2022. I'd also like to thank everyone that supported the podcast thus far. If you'd like to follow along or hear more podcasts from me, go ahead, hit that subscribe button the bell notification on YouTube, and you'll be notified every time I release a new podcast. One of my goals for 2022 is to put out a little more content. Got a lot of ideas, and I'm excited and looking forward to the year ahead. All right, everybody, take care.